0: Okay, now on to Luke, as if that weren't sermon enough for this morning. So this parable, the parable of the rich fool from Luke chapter 12, there's a kind of a surface level interpretation of the parable that Jesus invites us to see before he even tells it. Uh, This is one where Jesus doesn't leave us guessing as to the meaning of the parable. He, He tells us outright. He interprets the parable with a straightforward heading, even before he tells it, and and he says this. He said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So he offers this summary of the parable that kind of directs our interpretation, but I I don't think that it exhausts the parable's meaning. If anything, it serves as a kind of foundation, a jumping-off point for the parable's interpretive possibilities. One of the things I appreciate about artistic depictions, like the one we just saw and one we'll look at in a moment, of events in the Gospels, is the way that they highlight truths that might not be explicit in the text. There's an 18th century Russian painting that we'll look at this morning called, I Will Pull Down My Barns. It's based upon the parable in today's Gospel text. And this painting, in particular, I think is A great example of of why artistic depictions of biblical texts are helpful. They open us up to see the the text in fresh ways. The first thing we might notice about this painting, which again is called I Will Pull Down My Barns, is that it is ironically named. The rich fool is not doing any work here. He's seated at his table. The I in the title is doing no such thing We see the rich fool seated at a table, counting his money, while others do his bidding. And the parable even says the land of a rich man produced abundantly. So it's not a result necessarily of the work that the man has done himself. The second thing we might notice as we look at this is the rich fool's isolation. Just as in Jesus' parable, the rich fool in the painting is alone And as you look at the painting, listen to his thoughts. Again, from Luke chapter 12, he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones. There I will store all my grain and my goods, all my noodles and salad, and I will say to my soul, soul. So he's speaking not only about himself, but but to himself, oddly. He's the only one there until, of course, God speaks. The painting, however, shows us something that's not necessarily explicitly present in the telling of the parable, which is that he is not necessarily alone. At least he's not the only one depicted in the the painting. Again, there's this flurry of activity outside of the rich fool's house. Although he sits alone at a table, he's by no means alone, which I think is what makes this painting so effective. There are multiple servants here, all of whom bend under the weight of loads of grain as they move this bumper crop from the smaller barn to the larger barn. So in this way, I want to submit this morning that the painting underscores another truth of the parable, which is that greed stifles Community. Greed stifles community. In addition to demonstrating the truth that life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions, the parable implies that the rich fool, fool's greed isolates him and, and cuts him off from meaningful relationship. And the painting even takes this a step further. Greed not only cuts him off from relationship, but it also ensures that the only relationships he can have are those defined by subjugation and coercion. All he has to do is give the command and his nameless, faceless servants are there to do his bidding. His circumstances have allowed him the luxury to be left alone or to be surrounded only by those who enrich his life materially, who don't make unreasonable Unreasonable demands on his time. A third thing we might notice about the painting is the spatial relationship between the figures. So the rich fool appears to be seated above the servants. He appears to be looking down, but he doesn't appear to be looking at the other figures in the frame. At best, he's looking past them. At worst, he doesn't even notice them and focuses only on his money. In this way, I think the painting alerts us to another important truth of the parable and one that the parable's context seems to invite, which is that greed averts our eyes from the places Christ would have us to look. The parable's context suggests as much. Remember what leads Jesus to tell the parable in the first place. A man wants Jesus to resolve a family dispute that he has. We read it a moment ago. Someone in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me.'" I love the way Debbie Thomas characterizes this interaction and her commentary on this passage. She contrasts what Jesus notices and what the man notices, or rather doesn't notice. She says, "'Jesus looks at the man embroiled in a family feud over money and sees that his obsessive need for a fair share is twisting.'" gnarling and embittering his heart he the man making the request here can't see his own brother as anything more than an obstacle or a competitor he's so concerned about possible scarcity that he doesn't even notice actual abundance Jesus standing right next to him in his greed he reduces the son of God to an estate lawyer Again, not only in the parable itself, but in the interaction that leads to its telling, greed averts our eyes from the places Christ would have us to look. Or back up even further in Luke chapter 12, in the verses that immediately precede this exchange, Jesus is telling his followers that they are going to experience conflict. They will be put in difficult circumstances and forced to answer for themselves. Listen to what he says immediately before this request is made of him jesus speaking to his followers says when they bring you before the synagogues the rulers and the authorities do not worry about how or what you will answer or what you are to say for the holy spirit will teach you at that very hour what you are to say you can almost hear paul's words to the ephesians and what jesus is saying here for our struggle is not against blood and flesh but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And it is at this moment of all the moments that the man voices his concern about his share of the inheritance. Not a very good sense of of timing, I don't think. This man is so fixated on his family conflict that he's completely missing Jesus' words about where the real battle is being waged. Again, greed obstructs his vision. He's anxious about an inheritance dispute at the very moment Jesus is telling his followers not to worry about their impending struggle. And that struggle is with rulers and authorities. So when Jesus tells the parable to the man, he's telling him that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. But he's also saying to a man embroiled in a dispute with his brother that greed stifles community. It isolates us from one another and puts us at odds with one another. It distorts our vision, obstructs it, keeps us from seeing what God intends us to see, keeps us from looking where he intends for us to look, which includes both upon oppressed people and the systems that keep them oppressed. I think the painting demonstrates that beautifully. So here we are, great work, Austin, you've convinced us that greed is bad, (laughs) as if we needed convincing. But I think what's important to consider here, and maybe easy to miss, is that like other sins, greed is more often not something we seek out consciously, but something that sneaks in. When greed manifests, it's not because we're looking for ways to be greedy most of the time. As it does with the rich fool, it often kind of cloaks itself in this justification of, I'm looking for financial security. I'm looking for protection of the future of my loved ones. But as much as we might wish it, Jesus isn't instructing us to to seek security. We're following the one whose invitation is ultimately to deny ourselves and to follow him. As much as we might wish it were otherwise, So what are we to do about greed? How do we become, as Jesus puts it in the parable, rich toward God? To hear the challenge of Jesus' parable afresh, I want to focus in the time that we have left on the question that God asks the rich fool in verse 20. Your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? I think one way of reading God's question to the rich fool is, you're going to die tonight. Your life is being required of you, demanded of you, this very day. What will happen to all your stuff? And that is a necessary and challenging way to read this passage. Of course, none of us will escape death. And throughout scripture, the picture of a wealthy person living in luxury and without cares or concerns for those around him or her, is often tethered to the imminence and the inevitability of death. So, I know you're all intrigued. Let's take a brief survey. Uh, Psalm 49, uh, which happens to be our appointed psalm in the lectionary for today. Do not be afraid when some become rich, when the wealth of their houses increases. For when they die, they carry nothing away. Their wealth will not go down after them. Or in Luke chapter 16, a parable just a few chapters later, Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. And just four verses later, we get the rich man also died and was buried pretty abruptly. And then in James chapter 5, this is all over the place, by the way. This is just a brief sampling. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Have you had enough? You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The word of the Lord. It's It's a prevalent theme in scripture. So we shouldn't be surprised, perhaps, to find it here in the parable, again, in Jesus' telling. There's a but coming. But... Part of me wonders if limiting the interpretation of the parable to, you fool, this is your last day on earth, stops short of another challenge that this parable presents. If all God is saying to the rich fool is, you're going to die tonight, there's a way of reading that in which he kind of gets off easy, isn't there? There's a sense in which his death kind of absolves him from taking responsibility for his actions. It's quite another thing I'd submit to read this passage as though the rich man is, and follow me here, the rich fool is you or or I. With whatever amount of wealth we've amassed, with whatever number of years or decades we have remaining to live, being told this very day and all the days ahead, God will demand your very life. The things you prepared, whose will they be? Or to say it another way, the question isn't whose will your possessions be when you're gone tomorrow, but rather whose will they be when you're here tomorrow and all of your remaining tomorrows, when your life will again be demanded of you each day. Whose will they be in your perhaps many remaining tomorrows, during which your life will be demanded of you over and over again? Will they belong only to you? Again, Debbie Thomas, who we heard from earlier, asks the question pointedly What would we do differently if we believed that God does, in fact, demand our lives from us every single day in every single way? As the hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See how we might hear this parable in a different register. Reading God's question to the rich fool in this way opens up answers that we might overlook if we understand the question only as rhetorical or only as referring to the man's imminent demise. God's question to the rich man, your life is being demanded of you. The things you've prepared, whose will they be, reemerges as an idea of primary concern to the followers of Jesus in the book of Acts. So I want to close this morning by looking at a couple of different responses to this question that the early church makes. One answer to this question comes in Acts chapter 2. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. All the things you prepared, whose will they be? And the early church's answer to that question is, fairly straightforwardly, Well, they belong to anyone in need. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44, we read, All who believed were together and had all things in common, They'd sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts. These early followers of Jesus understood their lives as gifts. They lived generously toward one another as a result. Commenting on the early Christian community's life together, theologian Norman Wurzba says this, To receive with open hands is also to continue to keep one's hands open so that others can receive from you. Gratitude, in other words, is the sign that the gift has been received, while generosity is the sign that the recipient has been transformed by the gift. A contrasting answer to this question comes soon after in Acts chapter 5. Your life is being demanded of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? Ananias and Sapphira give a different answer. They cloaked their answer to that question in deceit. Their answer ultimately was the things we prepared will will be ours. But a man named Ananias with the consent of his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge and he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. They meet their demise soon after. And again, Wurzba commenting on this response says: the moment a gift becomes a commodity that is one's private possession, its effect will be to fragment and undermine the community. Their action was not only a violation of the community, but a denial and rejection of reality as a sacred gift, as life, and life as the receiving and giving of these gifts. So As we prepare to close, and I don't know whose responsibility it is to usher the the kids in here as we prepare for communion. How do we avoid the kind of greed that stifles relationship, that isolates us from one another, that, that puts us at odds with one another, that obstructs our vision and keeps us from seeing what God would have us to see? How do we, again, as the parable puts it, become rich toward God I'd submit that one way is to to lean into community and to its rhythms, entering into the cycle of giving and receiving. This is how we counteract greed in all of its forms. And the table that we're prepared to approach this morning is a primary example of how this might take place. We receive in gratitude and allow that gratitude to work its way into our hearts to affect the kind of transformation that brings about generosity. In other words, if it stops only at gratitude, we're missing what keeps the cycle going, which is the transformation that brings about generosity. See that connection? I hope that's clear. We receive in gratitude. We allow that gratitude to work its way into our hearts to transform us. So Kevin, if you'd come as we prepare to sing... Uh, We'll sing a song together, and then I'll come back up and uh, invite each of us to the table. But as our kids file in, would you stand, and we'll sing together.